few years ago, I was introduced to the Christmas movie Elf. And uh, he sees a sign in a restaurant that says, World's Best Cup of Coffee. And he takes his girlfriend there, and she doesn't agree. Uh, there's a lot of claims in this world about being the best or being the greatest. But God is truly the greatest. He's the greatest of the great and the highest of the high. In this scripture, we're going to be talking about that. And um, we all need to understand God's greatness and, and believe in God's greatness because it makes every bit of difference in how we respond and trust God in life. If you believe that God is able to answer your prayer, if you believe that God is faithful uh, he, and He'll come through in those times where you're trusting Him, it will make a huge difference in your walk with God. Uh, the scripture that we're looking at this morning, there is a pagan king, Keterleomer, and uh, he is, is accompanied by several other kings. He's kind of the one in charge. Uh, and he has subjugated the five cities of the plain, which include Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Lot is living in Sodom. And so this, this group of cities of the plain has been paying tribute to Keterleomer uh, for some 13 years. And in the 13th year, they get tired of it. And they decide that they're not going to do it anymore. And so the next year, Keterleomer and his group come once again. Uh, to subjugate them, but they also, all, all around uh, their, their area there, with the kings and so forth, he conquers all the peoples around them so that nobody can come to their aid. And then he comes and makes war with them and conquers them, and he takes them captive. He spoils their goods, and he takes Lot captive. There is an escapee, though, and he goes to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, he says, look, uh, your nephew Lot has been captured by this coalition of kings who's defeated Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. And, and he, has, he has gone with those people captive. And so Abram begins to talk to some of the others there that he has covenant with. And he decides he's going to go pursue Lot and he's going to deliver Lot from this king. And we find out that he has put his trust in God later on in the chapter. Uh, he has prayed to God and he has asked God and sought God's favor and God has answered. And so Abram goes with just 318 men and he conquers five kings. They attack at night and they defeat them. And uh, he regains Lot and, and all the possessions the cities of the plain have lost. And he comes back to the land of Palestine, and a mysterious figure named Melchizedek meets him there. Melchizedek blesses him, and then he says, Blessed be God most high. And, uh, and, and so Abram receives that blessing, um, and then the king of Sodom comes to Abram, and he says, Hey, give me the people. You can have the spoils for yourself. Give me the people. And Abram says, I have raised my hand to God Almighty that I'm not even going to take the thong of a sandal that you have so that you won't say you've made Abram rich. You see, Abram recognized that all the blessing he had, all the good that he had came from God. He recognized that the only reason he defeated these foreign kings was that God was with him. 
And he remembered the covenant that God had made with him, that, that he would bless him. And so he was bound and determined that this wicked king of Sodom was not going to get the credit for what God had done. And as you look at the names of these certain kings, and as you look at the story, uh, there's this, this play back and forth. There's all the wealth of the cities of the plain, and yet it can't deliver them. Uh, there's all the power of Keteleomer and his forces. He defeats even the Rephaim, the giants, the Israelites are afraid to go fight. He defeats them, and yet Abram defeats him. And there's just this mark, this impress upon this chapter of the sovereign power of an almighty God who is in charge of the affairs of man. And uh, we need to put our trust in that great God. We need to recognize his greatness and praise him for his greatness. Uh, the title of my message is Trusting in the Greatest God. Uh, look with me at verse 1 of Genesis 14. In those days, Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elasar, King Ketileomer of Elam, King Tittle of Goim, Wage war against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, King Shemeber of Zeboim, as well as the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All of these came as allies to the Sidim Valley, that is the Dead Sea. They were subject to Ketileomer for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Ketileomer, the kings who were with him, came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim. The Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shavakiriathim, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir as far as El Paran by the wilderness. Then they came back to invade in Mishpat, that is Kadesh. And they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who lived in the Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bila, that is Zoar, went out. And lined up for battle in the Sidim Valley against Ketileomer, king of Elam, king Tittle of Goim, king Amraphel of Shinar, king Arioch of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the Sidim Valley contained many asphalt pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. One of the survivors came and told Abram the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshkel, the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, uh, to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and, and his goods, as well as the women and all the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Ketileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shava Valley, that is the king's valley. Uh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine as he was priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has handed your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. 
Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so that you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten, but as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, they can take their share. Trusting in the greatest God. Why is he the greatest God? Uh, this will tell us why we should trust him. Amen? He's the greatest because he chastens us. He's the greatest because he chastens us. Only somebody who truly cares about their children disciplines them. Uh, God loves us as his people, and so he chastens us. Uh, some of the names, I'm not going to get into all the names, but uh, some of the names here are interesting. And the king of Shinar is mentioned in verse 1. Shinar was the arrow of Babylon. Babylon was God's instrument of chastening. And any of the Israelites reading this scripture after that time would have recognized, hey, this is the very king that came against Israel and defeated the southern kingdom of Judah and took them captive later on. Uh, then king, of, king Arioch of Elasser, Elasser actually means God is chastener. God is chastener. Now I believe God wasn't chastening the five cities of the plain. He was judging them. They were exceedingly wicked before God. They did not know God. And they had no inclination to know God. And God was judging them for the tremendous wickedness that was there in the five cities of the plain. But Lot had taken up residence with them. And God knew that Lot was on a path of destruction in his life. And he knew that if Lot didn't repent and decide to put God first in his life, that Lot was going to lose his wife. He was going to have uh, the brokenness of what took place in his family after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he would be reaping the consequences of his, of his choices the rest of his life. And so God is, is warning. He's chastening Lot. And, and just the, the side note that Lot was dwelling in Sodom is an important note here in this chapter because God saw where Lot was. He had been, he'd pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now he was living in Sodom. And he was at home in the place of wickedness. He was pursuing the things of the world rather than putting God first in his life. And it was going to affect him. It was going to affect his family. And it would even affect uh, Israel later on. And so God is chasing him, trying to turn him from his wicked path. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. If you're on a path that God doesn't approve of this morning, you need to turn from that wicked path. If you're his child, he will chasten you. He will discipline you. And so Lot's discipline was being taken captive in this great struggle. And the Bible doesn't tell us the details of what happened, but it does tell us that God chastened him. Praise God that God chastens us. The Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. God's chastened me before. If you're a child of God, he's chastened you because uh, there's not a one of us that haven't had a pattern of sin in our life at a time. Um, God doesn't wait in anticipation to jump on us, but he does lovingly correct us when we know he knows we're on the wrong path. 
and praise God for it. David said, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, kids, a lot of times, will test their limits with parents. Why? Because they want to know the security of the limits in their life. And so uh, that faithful discipline by parents gives a child uh, the security of knowing that they're loved and they're protected. So uh, trusting in the greatest God, why should we trust him? Uh, Because he chastens us. He's great enough and good enough to chasten us. Secondly, he provides for us. He provides for us. Now, interestingly... King Ketterleomer, it actually means a handful of sheaves. So uh, he's, I guess he's getting rich off the kings of the plain. You know, he's got plenty of, of money, plenty of resources, and he's got the handful of sheaves and uh, providing for his people, but he's not the real provider. And if you read through this story, you find that God is the one who provides for Abram. A lot of times in this life, there there are those who uh, claim to have what we need, but there's one place to find what we truly need, and that is with the Lord. And he is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He provides for our needs. What did he provide for Abraham? Well, he had blessed Abraham with a lot of possessions. Uh, He provided him with the friends that he had there who helped him in the campaign. Uh, He provided the wisdom that he needed to, to uh, bring the campaign to success. Um, he provided the safekeeping as they came back. Every facet of this in Abraham's life, God was protecting him and providing for him in his needs. And I'm going to tell you, God will provide for us. As we're generous toward God, as we look to serve God, and uh, as Philippians says, as they were generous toward God, he says, and my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Uh, Are you generous toward God? Abram was generous toward God. He was willing to leave his homeland. He was willing, he even gives Melchizedek a tenth. Uh, Why? Because he was recognizing the fact that God is my provider. Everything that I have is from him. And that's, by the way, that's why we give. Uh, Did you know God doesn't need your money? He doesn't need mine either. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Why do we give? We give to worship and honor him for his goodness to us. And uh, the tenth, actually, that Abram gives is not in the law at this point, uh, but later was established in Israel's law. They would give a tenth of of what they uh, got in their harvest to God, and um, they would offer offerings to God. Uh, as a way of blessing and worshiping God. So God provides for us. Listen, I want you, God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness. He gave them manna from heaven and water from a rock. I love the one scripture. He says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging for bread. If you're God's child, he's going to take care of you. He's your provider. So he chastens us. That's why he's great. He provides for us. That's why he's great. He overcomes for us. I love this. Look at verse 5. In the 14th year, Ketelaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim. And then if you look at the end of the 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 verse, I'm sorry, it says the Emim. Why is that important? Well, if you look at Deuteronomy 2 and 
Verses 10 and 11, you find out these are the very people the people of Israel were having to overcome. And they were people who were giants in stature. The tallest man alive today is over 8 feet tall. Uh, Goliath that fought David was over 9 feet tall. And he was one of these guys. So this, this, was, a, this was a real man right here, okay? Uh, this is what he's talking about. These are, these are mighty, mighty men who are defeated by Kedorlaomer and who defeats Kedorlaomer? Abram and his group of 318 men. I'm going to tell you, that's a miracle. It's a miracle. Four kings, four powerful kings that were able to subdue the cities of the plain with all their wealth. They were able to subdue them. Abram defeats them with 318 men. Listen, I'm going to tell you, if you serve the overcoming God, nothing is too hard for him. And Abram sets an example for it. He wasn't primarily a soldier. Matter of fact, this is the only case we have, the only description we have of him ever fighting a war, but he'd prepared his men. He was ready for battle. And when the time came, he did not trust in his training, and he didn't trust in what he had, but he trusted in the living God. And because he did, he was able to overcome. Listen, I don't know what you're facing in your life right now, but can I tell you, God's able to overcome it. God's able to overcome sickness, financial problems, whatever it may be. He has all power. Peter needed to tax, and God told him, he said, go throw your line in, in, the, uh, in the lake. And he goes and he catches the fish. And in the fish's mouth is the exact amount of the tax that he needed to pay. Isn't that amazing? So God is able to supply our needs. He's able to overcome in the difficult circumstances that we face. Fourthly, I want you to see he's faithful to us. He's faithful to us. Um, when Abram hears about the situation, it says that uh, he, he talks to um, Mamre, verse 13, uh, the brother of Eskel and the brother of Aner, and they were bound by a treaty, literally a covenant with Abram. And we're not told the details of how all this came about, but they had a covenant with Abraham. Guess what? God provided these men as friendships for Abraham and this covenant. But this reminds us of the greater covenant because, listen, these men, there's a few men here. Uh, yes, the cities later are named after them in the time of the conquest, but these were just, just a few men that had a covenant with Abram. The true covenant that made a difference in Abram's life was the covenant that God had made with him. And because of the covenant that God had made, God's blessing was upon his life. And God was faithful to keep his promise. I'm going to tell you something. God never breaks his promise. He cannot. He is always faithful. And when God promises you something, you can take it to the bank. He is faithful to us. You know, even in times in my life, I've had a few times in my life where I've wondered, God, what, what's going on here? One time I actually got angry with God, and I was kind of bitter at God, and uh, actually uh, didn't want to have a whole lot to do with God in my personal life. I kept going to church, but I was just angry with God and frustrated with God. But you know, after some time passes, oftentimes you can look back at those circumstances and you can see what God's done. 
And I found that God was faithful to me, even in those times where I thought he had abandoned me. Now, some things we may never know till we get to heaven, but we can take it to the bank. God is always faithful. So, he is great because he's faithful, and we ought to trust him. Then I want you to see he's great not only because he's faithful to us, but also because he created us. When Melchizedek is making his pronouncement, he blesses him. He says, Abraham is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. The context of Genesis is God is creator. God created everything. He is great because he creates for us. I don't know if you ever thought about that. And the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows the works of his hands and they bring glory to God. But he also created them for us. The scripture says that um, we have been fashioned by his hand. That um, God has created us for us all things richly to enjoy. Uh, I heard recently that Planet Earth is right in the particular spot of the Milky Way galaxy where we can observe the universe. It could have been anywhere in the Milky Way galaxy, but it's right in a place where we can observe. Why? Because God loves us. He wants us to see the splendor of what he's done. Every time you see a sunrise or a sunset, you need to thank and praise God. Every time you see the majesty of these beautiful mountains that we live in, you need to praise the living God who created them. Every time God gives you something uh, that is really, really good to eat, praise God, because guess what? He created the materials that they used to make it. He is our creator God. He's great because he's the creator. A hundred billion galaxies now, they, they say, they know of an estimated hundred billion, and they think probably more like 200 billion 200 billion. I'm not talking about stars. I'm talking about galaxies. This is what God has made. We serve a great, mighty, awesome God. So he's great because he creates for us. He's great because he sends Jesus to us. Now, Melchizedek wasn't Jesus, but he was a picture of Jesus. The Bible calls them types. Uh, if you look at verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem. What does Melchizedek, king of Salem, mean? Melchizedek means king of righteousness. In Salem, you've heard the Jewish people use it when they give their greeting, Shalom. Uh, he's the king of peace. You remember what Isaiah said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and, his, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is the king of peace. Jesus is the king of righteousness. He's the only true king of righteousness because only Jesus has never committed one sin. Melchizedek was an earthly priest who worshipped God. We're not told a whole lot about him. There's only two places in the Old Testament he's mentioned. Uh, but what we are told about, there's just the minute uh, amount of details that are necessary for him to be a picture of Jesus Christ. He's meant to point people to Jesus Christ. And so God is great because he sends Jesus to us. Can I tell you, even in Abraham's day, God was anticipating Jesus' day. 
And Jesus coming to save us from sin. Jesus told those who were opposing him, uh, Abraham saw my day and was glad. They said, what are you, what are you talking about? Uh, you're only so old and Abraham lived a long time ago. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. See, Abraham anticipated Jesus' day. He saw Jesus' day. One way he saw it was in this picture we find right here in Genesis of Melchizedek. God sent Melchizedek to Abram to bless him. God sent Jesus to us to bless us. And yes, God sent Jesus 2,000 years ago. Praise God for it. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He died as our substitute on Calvary's cross. He shed his blood. And the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Jesus died to pay the price for sin and he rose again. But can I tell you, even though God sent Jesus and then Jesus after his resurrection ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's coming again, God sends Jesus to every person who puts his trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm not leaving you alone. I am coming to you. He's talking about the sending of the Holy Spirit. Yes, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Yes, he's sending the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says when the Spirit comes to you, the Spirit and I are one. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to live within you. One of the greatest blessings, the greatest blessing of my life was the day when I was 11 years old. I've been wrestling with it for a year. And I bowed my knee at an altar like this, and I said, God, I'm trying to surrender my life to you. Help me surrender. And he did so. I said, I surrender everything to you, God. I'm going to follow you no matter what. And I'm trusting you to save me because of what your son did at Calvary. And God saved me in that moment, and the weight of my guilt lifted, and he came to dwell my heart. What an amazing thing he did for me. And I've never gotten over it. I've never been the same. And one day he's coming for me. He sends Jesus to us. God is great because he sends Jesus to us. And then finally God is great because he redeems us. Melchizedek as a priest to God Most High brought out bread and wine. Now, the old Jewish commentators when they commented on this said that a priest deals with bread and wine they recognize the sacrifices what would they do they take the bread and they would break it over the sacrifice of burnt offering and it would go up to God in a sweet smelling savor as an offering to him what would they do with the wine well in the same place that they drained out the blood of the sacrifice they would pour the wine at the side of the altar because The blood and the wine were the same. They were intended to represent the same thing. The blood of our Savior. Jesus said, This is my body which is given for you. And he broke the bread. He gave them the cup and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And he gave it to them. You see, this priest Melchizedek in bringing bread and wine anticipates the great Savior who whose body was broken at the cross, whose blood was shed at the cross, 
for you and me. That's called redemption. It's the paying of a price. That's what redemption means. Jesus paid the price for our sin. And he said these words, it is finished. Paid in full. It was actually the word that they would put at the bottom of a document of the bill. that They'd been making payments on the bill and it was paid in full. They'd put tetelestai. It is finished. It is paid. That's what Jesus did at the cross. Every sin in your past, every sin in your future, he paid for at Calvary. It's called redemption. It's one of the great truths. Did you know God cannot let anybody in this earth go to heaven without what Jesus paid at the cross? There would not be a single person get there. Why? Because God's just. God is holy. He is righteous. He cannot allow us to get away with sin. He cannot fail but bring justice upon our sin, judgment upon our sin. Why? Because he's holy. He's not like us. You and I have one standard of righteousness. His standard is so much higher and so much greater. He must punish sin. That's why Jesus had to come. He had to pay a price. He paid your price. He paid my price on the cross. It is finished. And the Bible tells us that the curtain of the temple was ripped in two. People came back to life. And that must have been exciting if you were visiting the cemetery and people started coming out of the graves. The rocks were ripped in two. The earth shook with the power of God. Why? Because the redemption price had been paid and the wrath of God had been poured out upon Jesus Christ in our place at the cross. Jesus paid the price of your redemption. I can tell you there's no God like our God that loves sinners, that pays the price, sends his own son to pay the price for the penalty that we deserved. Trusting in the greatest God. You ought to trust him because he is truly, truly great. Jesus has paid the price for your sin, but here's the thing. You've got to receive the gift of eternal life. Jesus has paid for it on the cross. Jesus has made it possible through his resurrection power. But you have to receive it in simple trust. And if you're ready this morning to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and put your trust in him, I'm just going to ask you here in a moment when the music begins to play to come here to the front. I'd love to lead you in a prayer of surrender and trust in Jesus. If you say, well, my heart's not surrendered. I want to give my heart to Christ, but I'm not willing to surrender to him. Then you need to come to that altar just like I did all those years ago and say, Lord, I'm trying to repent, but I need you to help me. And you need to ask God to change your heart and enable you to repent. And then choose to, re- to turn from your sin in your own way. That's what repentance means. To turn from your sin in your own way and receive the gift of eternal life. And God will save your soul. That's based on his promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the great truths that you've shown us in your word this morning. Thank you for the great God that you are. There is no God like our God.